0: You are listening to Overcomer's Church International podcast. Here at OCI, we are dedicated to our vision of building strong people and building strong churches. From wherever you are listening, we hope this message leaves you equipped and encouraged. I had a minister call me a few days ago and he was asking me what I was going to what I was going to share on for Easter or Resurrection Sunday, whatever you prefer. And, um, and I could tell he felt pressured about it. And I said, uh, let me just tell you what I learned. I said, for years, I felt the need to come up with this big pow of a message. And I said, I quit all that. Because I said, the reality is is that every single day of our life, we live in a reality that we serve a resurrected Savior so I don't know how to do it any any other way than just how I normally do it. And he was like, oh, okay, that's a good deal. And I decided the same thing for Christmas. So I'm not going to try to come up with a Christmas message or any other day. Every day we live, it's because Jesus was born, Jesus lived, Jesus died, and then Jesus rose again. What more do we need to know? Amen? It's probably a little bit more we could stand to know and it would be good for us. But that's where we just live every single day of our lives is in the reality of of the resurrection that Jesus did, that God did, that the Holy Spirit did in raising him up and what that truly means to us. And I think the greatest thing we could talk about is, and we could really talk for days on end, but is to really begin to unlock everything that was given to us because he was resurrected. I think oftentimes we'll talk about he overcame the grave, and and the songs we sing. I love all that, and that's true. He overcame the grave. He was he was physically one hundred percent dead, and he was in the tomb for three days. There was no chance of him coming back to life. But God intervened, and it's a tremendous picture of what God can do. But then also what God can do in our life with all of the the dead areas and the and the dead things that have. Come up on us or, or invaded our territory, whether it be a physical death of somebody. I believe in the raising from the dead power. Did I say that right? I not get too many amens, so just curious. I believe in the raising from the dead power. It's actually the very first thing necessary to have, to have uh, salvation. It says that you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead. This is in our spiritual DNA to believe in in the resurrection. And after the disciples, after the day, day of Pentecost, it says that they continued talking and preaching about the resurrection. And the reason why I believe that they talked about the resurrection so much Is because we'll say for 4,000 years, I don't know if the timing's right, but roughly for 4,000 years, from the time of the garden till the time of Jesus, men had been living in death. And not only did physical death enter the world and spiritual death enter to where people needed to be reborn or born again, but death also entered the realm of the soul, the conscience, the mind. The emotions in the place of connecting with the Lord. All of that, the enemy brought death and destruction from the garden. And until Jesus came and died and rose from the dead, never there was there a, made, a, a, a way made for man to be able to live continuously in a place of life. And this is why it tells us that Jesus was the lamb that produced eternal redemption. All of the other sacrifices that were made had to be offered over and over and over and over and over. And on the Day of Atonement, every year, there was a sacrifice made by the high priest to cover all the things that they, they missed in the previous year with any other sacrifices that they should have done that they didn't do. And every year, it was a reminder that they were still under a curse. It was a reminder that there was still a separation between them and God. But when Jesus came, he was the one sacrifice for all time, for all men, for all people, forever, never to have another sacrifice made again on our behalf. And for anybody that doesn't believe that, I would suggest you start bringing your your bulls and your goats and things like that, and build yourself an altar and and start the slaughtering. But it's done. All of that stuff is done 100%. And Jesus totally did a, a complete and finished work. And the picture of the resurrection is that Jesus died. And we're found in the likeness of his death so that we can also be found in the likeness of his resurrection. And when we are resurrected in the Lord... All of the old ways of relating to the Lord are completely done away with, and now we have a new and living way, a new and living hope to relate to the Lord, and it's through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to start with this verse. You say, I thought you already started. No, that was just the introduction. Now we're going to get started. Philippians chapter uh, 3 and verse 9, and if we could pull this up here. Oh, I love this. It says, and now I want, to, I want to tell you in context what this is saying. Paul just got done describing. He said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Concerning uh, the law, I was zealous. And he gave all of his natural pedigree. And he said, but I count all of these things as dung, literally as poop. He's saying all of the high things that I've attained in this life, they're what is equal to what you would flush down the toilet. That's quite a picture. And he says, for what I have in Christ is way greater. And he said that this is what he was praying, that I would be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which, righteousness which is from God by faith. Now go to verse 10. It says that I may know him. Now why is the word that there? Why is the word that in place there? It's because it's conjunction with what we just said. Let's go back and read that again, and then we'll read the rest of 10. Go back to verse 9. It says, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness. That means not of what I could produce through law-keeping, through uh, even, even the law of God, the, co- the commandments of God, or the commandments of men, any of, the, any of those things. So not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Why do, and leave that verse up there for a moment. Why would we want to be conformed to his death and the fellowship of his sufferings? Why don't we just leave that part out and just go straight for the resurrection because that's what everybody likes, amen? Nobody wants to talk about being conformed to his death. Everyone wants to be uh, found just in the resurrection. But you can't have a resurrection without a death first. And you know what needs to die? What needs to die? What needs to be put on the altar? What needs to be put down into the water of baptism and left in the water and we're risen again in newness of life is the old way of doing things. It's the old way of relating to the Lord and it's the consciousness that we used to have concerning all of our do's and our don'ts. All of that should be pushed to the side done away with, buried, never to be resurrected again, so that we could be found in the power of him, to know him in the power of his resurrection. Because when his resurrection came, everything that he did on the altar, everything that he did on the cross was there, and it was dead and buried, but if he hadn't arisen, then there wouldn't have been any new life. But that's what all the other sacrifices did, is that they made them, they were dead, and then they didn't come back to life. But when Jesus came as the sacrifice, he was dead, he was buried, and then he came back to life. Why? Because we have a new way of relating to the Lord that has nothing to do with our ability, only our faith in him. You say, man, I already know all this. We need to hear it again. This is the basis for, every, for everything in our relationship with the Lord. If we miss this, then we've missed everything. Because if we've missed this, what we're going to find ourselves doing is entering into some kind of system of works to try to gain access to God or gain access to happiness or gain access to some type of righteousness, whatever, whatever it is. If we don't have Jesus and an understanding of the life that he delivered us out of and into the life that he delivered us into, if we don't have that, we're going to find ourselves working and toiling and working and toiling to try to obtain. And that's really where you find, you'll find you find actually those two opposites. You'll find people that are working really, really hard to please God, and that's really a system of Satan, It's a doctrine of demons. Whenever you find people that preach, you have to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G for God to be pleased with you, for you to be saved, anything like that. It's a doctrine of demons. Strong words, I know, but it's true. Because there's only one gospel, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is only faith in him. It's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything else equals nothing. Because any works that we could add to what the cross did and what the resurrection brought us is a stench in the nostrils to God. Because it's only in self righteousness and not the righteousness which He's freely given us. So you find on one end, you'll find people that are working, and you'll find on the other end, people that are coping. The problem is the same for all humanity we're not right with God. Without faith in Jesus, you'll find religious folk, Pharisees, that will think they've arrived to a level for God's acceptance. And then you'll find other people that are so lost in their soul that they turn to drugs. They turn to uh, all kinds of rotten things in this life that would bring destruction upon them, destruction upon their flesh, because they can't find another way to cope with the darkness that's in their soul. But if they only really knew what Jesus did and what he brought, both the religious Pharisee and the publican, the ones that Jesus talked to both of them, one was so downtrodden on themselves, and the other one was so high and mighty, they both missed the mark. One was trying to cope through, uh, through wrong things. The other one was trying to cope through wrong things, but you can't do enough right things or wrong things to fill the hole inside of us. Only Jesus can fill that hole. I believe that every single human being on the face of the earth was born into this world with a Jesus-sized hole, and it's shaped like Jesus, and only Jesus could fit in there. And if you try to do anything else, it's like trying to put a, what do they say, a, a round peg in a square hole or whatever the saying is. Only Jesus will fit in that place. But every person finds themselves in the same predicament of trying to fill that gap. And religion says, this is the way to do it. And sometimes it's not even religion, it's just your own conscience, which is actually what religion has been birthed out of. Because all the way back in the garden, their conscience became defiled before God. And all of the world religions that you see today is some type of working to get some type of rightness. Every single world religion, every one, including most sects of the, quote, Christian church. It's full of do's, don'ts. If you don't do this, if you don't do that, you better do this, you better do that. And most of it's out of a thing of like, we we have to become right but that's the whole point of the gospel is Jesus was right. Jesus paid the price so that through faith in him, we don't have to work anymore. It's just faith. And now we are right with God. But if we are still carrying a sin consciousness, we'll never go before the Lord. We'll never go before the Lord boldly like we are supposed to, because Hebrews tells us to go boldly I think it's chapter 4 and verse 16, 17, somewhere around there. It says, let us go boldly to the throne of grace to receive grace and to receive mercy in our time of need. It's not a denial that we need something, but it is denying that we have the ability to fulfill the need that we have in and of ourselves. And it's acknowledging, Jesus, only you can fulfill the need that I have in my life. But somebody who is sin conscious won't go to the Lord and say, Father, help me. Why? Because the fear that is in them, the condemnation, the shame, the guilt that is on them is too great and they'll find themselves running from the Lord. And it works the same for religious folks and for people that are out in the world doing drugs and whatever else that they might be doing. And I have, I have compassion for both of those people. Because one is trying to work their way there. The other one's just completely given up hope and has thrown themselves into the fire and says, I don't know what else to do in my life. I've got to have something to numb the pain. It says in Galatians chapter one, and let's pull this up here. Galatians chapter one and verse three, it says, <clears throat> actually, I think it might not be Galatians one and three. Let me find it here. It says that he didn't come to deliver us Or he did come to deliver us, excuse me, from this present evil world. And Galatians has escaped my Bible. I think I gave the guys the wrong verse back there, and I don't remember. It's Galatians 1 something. Yell it out if you see the verse. It's actually verse 4. My apologies. So verse 4, it says, well, verse 3 says, grace to you and peace from the Lord from God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse four, it says, who gave us, who gave himself for our sins. Now, listen to this, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. He might deliver us from this present evil age. Jesus was sent to deliver us from this present evil age. First John 3:8 says that the son of God was manifest for this reason to destroy the works of the devil. Now, I don't know about you all, but I've I've grown up and been around a lot of a lot of Pentecostalism, a lot of jumping and shouting and de- devil uh, thumping and, you know, casting out and throwing down and rebuking and there's a place for all of that. I don't have a problem with that stuff. But I think we've actually missed the the mark on a lot of what spiritual warfare really is. Because if you go back and you look in the garden, what took place and what precedent was set was an attack on people's identity and on their soul, on their consciousness. I believe with everything in me, the greatest weapon that the enemy has is to speak lies to us concerning who we truly are. And this is where he's had people doing all kinds of things to try to be, not realizing that Jesus already be so we could be. Jesus already did so that we could be. And if we just see that clearly, we'll stop the workings. For the religious folk, they'll stop all the working and striving to obtain. And for the people that are totally lost and without hope, They'll lay down the drugs. They'll lay down the illicit lifestyle. They'll lay down all of the, the depression and all of the things that are troubling their soul. And they'll turn to the Lord and they'll say, he's the only one that could possibly fix this. And I believe that that, that really is the work of Satan. I'm going to give you a few things here just really quickly that I believe are, are works of Satan. And you can write this down if you're taking notes. This is kind of heavy-revy for Easter Sunday, but that's just what I do. If you're looking for a pizzazz, this is why I wore a tie today, amen? So you're welcome. You know, we often will look at somebody who's totally off the deep end, and we we all have family members that are just lost and just, you know, heavy into what we would call the world. And we need to understand that Satan is the God of this world system. I've had people go, no, oh, God is God of the world. Well, God, he's the God of the earth, but what's operating inside the earth, the way people function is largely within Satan's grasp within his kingdom, within his world, within how he does things. That's where most people are at. So, and the Bible tells us that he's the God of of this world. The God of this world, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to the light of the glorious gospel. What is the glorious gospel? You don't have to work anymore. But why do people work? Why do people work? Why do people go to church without having any relationship with the Lord? Right now, today... And it breaks my heart, and I'm not speaking to you guys. I think you, you all in here probably love Jesus with everything in you. But there are people all over this country, all over the world today, when they wouldn't necessarily go any other time, some of them. Thank you, sir. They're in church today because they feel an emptiness or they feel a need to perform so that God will accept you know what that comes from? It comes from Satan. I'm going to give you, I've got seven different things here that I believe are works of Satan, and I think you could add more in there, but I think that these are seven. Unworthiness is a work of Satan. And I interrupted myself. And what I was going to say is, when you see people out in the, in the world and doing drugs and you know all of the really hard, bad stuff, they'll say, oh, they're out in the world. And it usually comes from someone that talks like that. Someone that is religious and performance-based is just as much in Satan's world as the person not doing drugs. One is trying to fix their unworthiness through actions. The other one has just lost hope and given up completely. But here are works of Satan. Unworthiness, worthlessness, feeling unloved, shame, fear, rejection, and loneliness. And you could add some more in there, I'm sure. But those are some of what I would consider to be works of Satan. It's a turmoil. It's a darkness inside the soul of every single person, even many born-again Christians. Because when you get saved, your spirit changes, but your mind doesn't automatically change. Your thinking, your consciousness does not automatically change. That comes through renewing your mind according to the what? The word. In what particular part of the word Leviticus I wouldn't recommend going to Leviticus to renew your mind about God's love there was a purpose for the law but it wasn't so God would be pleased with you the reason the law was given was to show man oh Jesus this is so powerful it was to show man their need for a savior you know why Jesus was so hard on the Pharisees you want to know why It's not just because they were hypocrites. They were hypocrites, and that was part of the leaven of the Pharisees. But also part of the leaven of the Pharisees was their doctrine. And the doctrine they taught was not the word. It wasn't the law of God. God gave the law for it to be taught, for it to be given, for it to be read. Why? So the people could come up and live at a holy standard that would please God? No, so the people would look at it, they would hear it, they would read it and say, God, we can't do that, we have to put our trust in you. And you know why God, why Jesus in particular was so hard on the Pharisees? is because the Pharisees dumbed down the law. Instead of just preaching the law and doing what it was supposed to do, which is to bring man to a place of saying, God, we can only put our trust in you. They dumbed it down, and they made all of these rituals commandments of men, commandments of the elders, and the law of God was way beyond reach, but what they did is they brought some of those things down and then mixed in some of their religiosity and brought it to a level that was attainable to them, but still out of the grasp of most people. And they said, this here, this here, this is the standard you need to align yourself to this is it right here. And Jesus said, you hypocrites. He said, he said, you neglect the commandments of God. And when you do this, because of your traditions, you make the word of God or the commandments of God of no effect. Well, if the commandments of God, the law of God, can't cause us to live holy enough to please God, what are they there for? They're there so that people can realize their need for a savior. That was the whole point of the law. And so it would point to, my God, we can't live up to it. We have to have you. This is why you see, why you see the different response with how God would do things in the law. Take David. We all know what David did. Man, that guy's got to live with that for all eternity, but, but he doesn't because of the grace of God. I don't know how it all will work out. But anyways, so we all know what David did. But David was, it was said about David, that he was a man after God's own heart. God, he had that man had so much favor on him. He conquered kingdom after kingdom. He had so much favor on him, he had like a thousand wives or something like that. I mean, look at the favor of God on him. You're going to laugh there, all right? One wife is all, all I can handle, but, you know, anyways. Uh, anyways. But then you take the, the very first person that broke the law. You know who it was? It was a person who picked up sticks on the Sabbath day. God said, Moses, make an example out of him. And they stoned the person to death for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. You know why? It's because that person thought that they, on their own level and their own thinking, on their own righteousness, were fine. But David, even in his deep sin, still realized, God, I have to have you. I have to have you. That's the difference between people that are within the grace of God in people who are outside, whether they're trying to cope through all of the wrong things in this world or they're trying to perform well enough. All of that is outside of what God wants. All of it is outside of Jesus. Man, that's really powerful stuff. I want to show you this a little bit more from Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three. Let's turn there real quick and we're going to read a few verses I find that the gospel is the thing that I'm most drawn to because it says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. It's not the law keeping. It's not going to church. It's not reading your Bible. It's, it's not all of the things that you could put in there. And those things are fine. Those things are good. And a lot of those things are how we relate to the Lord. And it helps us grow and all that. But when it comes down to it, it's the message of the gospel. Gospel means good news. To ever tell anybody that they have to live at a standard for them to be accepted by God is not good news. (laughs) That is not good. (laughs) How How high is the bar really? Well, if you have any kind of religious church leader that says it's right here, they're a Pharisee. Because now they've dumbed down the law of God to their level. And says they say, this is the bar. If you can keep this, you'll be fine with God. That's phariseutical. There's not one person in the whole world that could ever live well enough for God to be pleased with them. It, the pleasing only comes, he's only pleased through Jesus. That's it, it's not through anything else. I wanna show you where this all started. Genesis chapter three, oh, this is so powerful. And I wanna start in, in verse seven. We're just gonna read a few verses here. It says, and of course, this is right after they ate of the tree. And it says, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves, very important, from the presence of the Lord, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice. In the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Then the next thing God says here is, "Who told you that you were naked?" I was at a, a conference a, a couple years ago, and uh, Brother Andrew was ministering. And the very first thing he comes out and he goes, "Well, I'm going to be ministering on, who told you you were naked?" And he was like the whole everyone was like, "Oh my gosh, where is this going?" And It comes back to here, literally, what a question for God to ask them. Who told them they were naked? Who told they were naked before, right? And I would guess that Adam probably knew that Eve was naked. I'm just taking a stab at it. He probably recognized that. But there was no shame involved. So when God was saying, who told you you were naked? He was asking, who brought you into a shameful place? You know that God didn't first ask, what did you do wrong? How dare you break one of my commandments? He said, who told you, who told you that you were ashamed, that you were shameful? Who told you that? And you notice that they didn't necessarily try to cover up their sin. It says they hid themselves Folks, this is is the problem with the entire world right here. This is it. The precedent was set. People from the time of the garden and every person that was born after Adam and Eve were automatically born into the exact same state. They were born with a sin consciousness. They were born with a conscience that says that I'm not right and I need to become right. This is why every world religion has a system of works to get to the level that they say that you are supposed to be. And this is why people do it. Because I used to ask, who would who would go who would become a Buddhist? I mean, why would you do that? Who would become, you know, any of the other things that people do? Why would you do that? It's to ease something inside the soul that says I'm not right. Every single person intuitively knows that they are not right. But this is where the power comes in. When Paul said, oh, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection, honest before God, it's been at least 10 years since I have ever, or not ever, but it's been at least 10 years since I have gone before the Lord with any kind of guilty conscience at all. You say, well, haven't you sinned? Uh, honestly, I sinned about 3 a.m. this morning because our electricity went off and our fan went off and I got up and I was angry. I mean, technically, that was, I wasn't mad at the devil. I was mad at whatever. The electricity was off. And please forgive me. I'm, I'm really, I like sleep a lot. So, you know. <laughs> you say, well, don't you have a guilty conscience? No. Because Jesus died and paid the price Not just for my past, but my present, and even my future tense sin. I don't have to live guilty for things that I do or things that I don't do. Anybody that lives guilty has not been set free from a guilty conscience that Jesus came to set us free from. You understand that he came to deliver us from this present evil age. What is that? Anything that you would do to numb the darkness in your soul, Or anything that you would do to try to erase, cover up, or atone for the darkness in your soul. The thing in you that says that I'm not right. Jesus came to deliver us from all of that. Let me show you one more passage here in Hebrews chapter 9. Man, I hope you're getting something out of this. As I I spend, my new word is I'm spending copious amounts of time in the word. And that's growing more and more all the time. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And the more, somebody gotta fix this microphone that's smarter than me. The more I spend time in the word and in the gospel, the more I realize the single biggest problem in the world, it's not sin. It's sin consciousness. Oh, there's so many places I could go in the word right now, but we're gonna to go to Hebrews chapter nine. But let me just say this that, and this is found in Romans chapter five. That Adam was the first Adam. And what he did was throw the entire, Eve did too, but it just talks about Adam anyways. Uh, Adam was the first Adam. And what he did threw the world into a perpetual state of sin and of sin consciousness. We sin because we are sinners or we used to be before Christ. You don't become a sinner because you sin. I'll say it the other way. You don't become a sinner because you sin. You sin, or the human race sins, because they are sinners. You were born that way, automatically after the seed of Adam. You were just born that way. You you couldn't help it. We couldn't help it. Now, we can help actions that we do, praise God, Nobody should be going, well, I'm after the seed of Adam. I just can't help it. No, there's holiness. There's righteousness. God's called us to live higher. All of that's good. Amen. But when Christ came in, he was the last Adam. Everybody say last Adam. Adam. And since he was the last Adam, what he did undid what the first Adam did. You have to put faith in it. You have to put trust in it. All this nonsense about ultimate reconciliation and all that stuff, it's nonsense. You can prove it 12 ways wrong from the scripture. There is a heaven to gain and a hell to and a hell to lose. But for everybody who has put their faith and trust in Jesus, what the second Adam did, the, excuse me, the last Adam did. If it couldn't keep us in a perpetual state of not having to live with a consciousness of sin, then it was lesser than what the first Adam did, because the first. Oh my God, that's so powerful. <laughs> If it couldn't keep us in a perpetual state of living free from sin consciousness, then what the last Adam, Jesus, did was lesser than what the first Adam did. Does anybody in here believe that Jesus did something lesser than anybody else on the face of the earth, including Adam? No way. Jesus was the greater. But what the first Adam did, and since it threw everybody into a perpetual state of being conscious of their sin conscious of their need for a savior, once we are born again, we should live free from a guilty conscience. And you say, but I I messed up. You know what your conscience is there for? It's like an alarm clock. If you set, some people don't need an alarm clock, but just say the average person needs an alarm clock to wake up at 6 a.m. to go to school or job or whatever they have to do, or whatever time you get up. You set your alarm, your alarm goes off, it wakes you up and then you move on with your day. Let me ask you, does anybody keep their alarm clock going in their pocket all day long? No. It wakes you up and then you move on. It's exactly what a conscience is for. It wakes you up and then you move on. It's not to sit there and nag you and nag you and nag you, but for someone who still has a consciousness that they have been wrong, the devil will take that and beat you to a pulp. He will eat your lunch and pop the bag, as I've heard it put. He will remind you of everything that you have done wrong and everything that you are not doing right. And when you live in that kind of mentality, it will utterly, completely destroy you. You will have no confidence to go before the Lord like you were designed to. Oh, my God. The garden is where it was all laid out. They met with God every day. In the cool of the day, they met with God every day. Why? Why did they meet with him? Was it to believe for a new car? Was it because they were lacking food and they needed, God, please, we need food? Was it, no, it wasn't any of that stuff. They just met with him just to be with him. Just, just to be with him. And Satan has robbed us. He's robbed us from our intimacy with the Lord. Because when we go in, people go in, they go in, it's like, Lord, you know I did this, and God, you know I did that, and I haven't been doing that. God knows all of that stuff. And it's good to go in and say, Lord, I've been a real meathead lately. And, and to be carnally minded, literally, it's to be a meathead, because carnal is of the flesh, and flesh is meat. You're a meathead if you've been doing carnal things, amen? It's good to go in and say, Lord, help me not to do that. I do that often because I've often been a meathead. But when I go into the Lord, it'll lay all this stuff out so that he'll accept me. He already accepts me because of Jesus. And my consciousness of how I used to be has totally been dead, buried, washed away, and I was buried in baptism with Christ so that I could be risen again in the newness of life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Listen to these few verses here quickly. I'm going to give you out of Hebrews and then we're gonna we're going to close. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse nine and this is jumping right in the middle of some things here and they may not have it up on the screen I didn't I didn't give them this one, but Hebrews chapter 9, if you've got your Bibles turned there and look at verse 9 and this is talking about all of the priestly, Things that they did, all of the duties, all the sacrifices, it's talking about all of those things. It says it was symbolic, or you could say those things were symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices, now listen to this, are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So you're saying all those things that were done before, none of those things can make someone perfect in regard to their conscience. You know that either end, of the flesh spectrum is the exact same. Whether you're doing everything you possibly can to be right without Jesus, it will not make you perfect in regard to your conscience. There'll always be another level that you have to go to. Always be another level. And no matter what deep, dark hole you go into concerning the, the, the destruction of the flesh, and you could fill in the blank, no matter what, is taking place there. You'll never have enough stuff to numb your conscience and to fulfill what's happening inside of your conscience. Oh my gosh. Concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation, But Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats, And of calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once. Everybody say once. For all, having obtained eternal redemption. Do you know the difference between eternal and temporary? Natural things bring temporary redemption in terms of what they used to do. But only Jesus could bring eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, listen to this, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot spot to God, cleanse your what? Your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What are dead works? It's works that we do to try to appease God. It's good things that we do saying, God, look at what I've done. I've read my Bible. I've done all of these things. Now will you be pleased with me? And if you are there, you're operating in the flesh. You will never find yourself at a place of a clean conscience before the Lord because it's in your performance, which will never measure up. The only way you can have a clean conscience is to Firmly look at what Jesus did and then allow the Spirit of God to cleanse you as you read his word and latch on to his gospel. Oh my God, that's so powerful. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, if that wasn't good, look at the next chapter. Two ver- the first two verses here. It says, For the law, having a shadow of things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offered continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. In other words, the people that came and kept doing it, they never got perfect by doing it. It was only for the past things. See, once you're perfect, you don't make any more mistakes. I got news for you. I am perfect. Maybe not in my actions. Definitely not in my actions. Not always in my thinking. But the way God made me on the inside when I got born again, I'm a new creature in Christ. And he made me perfect. It says in Ephesians 4 and 24, it says, put on the new man, which was created in righteousness and holiness. It's his righteousness. It's his holiness. Oh, my gosh. Look at this next verse. For then would they not have ceased? So, in other words, if all those things would have done what they were supposed to do, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. This tells you what the goal was, to make people free in their conscience so that they could go and freely worship and serve and love God. Man, that's powerful. So powerful. Oh, so good. (laughs) It's just awesome. I love it. This this set me free and continues to set me free. Almost all of my time that I spend with the Lord is thinking about this right here, what he did to not just make me right, but to where I would think about how he's made me right. The same way that the enemy came into the garden and he told them this, this was the lie. He said, if you will eat of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, you won't surely die. But you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And then Eve argued just a little bit, but not too much. And then she went ahead and partook. He made them believe that they didn't have something that they already had. You know what the devil does to us, to Christians? He makes us believe that we are not or that we don't have something that we already have or already are. This is why it says in Revelation, I think it's 12 and 10, it says, that the accuser accuse the brethren day and night. Finally, one day he'll be totally obliterated and out of the picture. But that's what his job is now, to accuse us day and night. Accuse us of what? He can't accuse me that I'm unrighteous because Jesus has made me righteous. That's offensive to religion. How? how, Who do you think you are? You think you're righteous? Yes, I do. I just said that. I think I'm righteous, but it's not because of me. It's because of Jesus. Yes. Hallelujah. Can I get uh, Brooke and Kingston to come up and, and play for a moment? And I want to I want to finish this this one verse. I want to pull it up here. And it's First Peter, and I don't think I gave it to the guys back there, but it's First Peter, chapter three, and verse twenty-one. Would you just stand to your feet? Thank you, Jesus. Everybody say this is good. This is good news. Makes my soul happy. Yes. So we're looking at First Peter chapter three and in verse twenty-one. And if we could pull this up on the screen, I want everybody to see this. And this is jumping right in. And I don't think that's First Peter three twenty-one. Might be. Might be 2 Peter. I want everybody to look at this and see this. This is so powerful. and It's jumping in right in the middle. There it is. Of talking about how that through the, the flood waters the world was saved. And so it says there's also an anti-type, which now saves us. The water is actually what destroyed everything before, but in a sense saved them because it got rid of all of the things that needed to be gotten rid of in the world. So an antitype for us is the fact that we're actually going down in the water. Really, it is the thing that, that sal- brings salvation. Or it's the picture of the thing that brings salvation, which is faith in him. It's a dying to self and coming alive in Christ. But look at this. It says there's also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh. So in other words, it's saying it's not about an outward washing. When you get water baptized, it's not about going down on the water and going, oh, that feels good. And if it feels good, that's great. It should feel great. We should go back and remember how good it felt to say, Lord, my life belongs in you. It's, it's hidden in you. I'm dead to me. I'm dead to self. I'm dead to the world. And I'm alive in you. We should get that feeling. But it's not about washing away the filth of the flesh. But it says, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a picture of here's self, it can't measure up. Self goes down, self is buried. But when we come up, we come up risen in Christ Jesus and it says that that picture right there is the answer of a good conscience toward God It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ just as Jesus was risen so are we in newness of life as born again believers it's dead stinking wrong for us to consider ourselves sinners anymore we are no longer sinners saved by grace we're just saved by grace do we still mess it and mess up you betcha but God doesn't hold any of that stuff against us. David said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute, will not impute sins. You know who that man is? That's me. That's you. On this side of the cross, God's not holding our sins against us. That's what you call good news, folks. Hallelujah. If God is changing your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. If you would like to give or would like more information on how we are making a difference, visit... OCI